This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me now by phone are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, and we also have our music director, Elaine Trudell. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Hello. Brad. Thanks for joining me. We've been doing this for some time now because of the coronavirus pandemic. We're all relegated more or less to our homes and talking by phone with each other. But it's been, uh, it's been I think, some fruitful discussions have taken place uh, over the past few weeks. And today we're going to talk about uh, virtuosi or virtuosos, to use the English version. Um, you've got two very spectacular players that are appearing on the TV program this weekend. It's WGTE Presents TSO and HD happening at 6 o'clock Sunday afternoon. And we're going to talk about the whole concept of virtuosos, but also the two virtuosos in particular that are performing on that concert. That is the violinist Augustine Hadelich and also the pianist Olga Kern. So let's start with you, Elaine, because you were on the podium okay. for these concerts. Yeah. He had the best seat in the house, and he wasn't even sitting. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, we have a pretty good seat with the close-up cameras, right? Don't forget the conductor cam. We can always see what's uh, what's going on uh, with you, Elaine. It's actually the best seat in the house for a violin, not the best seat for a piano, because you're behind the piano, so you don't hear much. Oh, ah, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about uh, Augustine Hadelich, because I know you had worked with him before. Um, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, my relationship with Augustine is, is very special because Augustine was the soloist the week that uh, I came to uh, to conduct. Uh, and after after a few hours, I noticed it was an audition for this position. So uh, it was the week where I got accepted from, from the orchestra, from the board, from the, 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 the staff as a, a possible, a real possibility to be uh, art, uh, the artistic leader. So he was the soloist that we accompanied that weekend, the Dvorak Concerto. So for me, it, uh, it has a very special place in my heart each time I, I get to perform with Augustin. And, and also, he's, he's very old school, and I, I can elaborate on that if you want, but he's a very, very old school performer, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, a lot of folks, when they think of virtuosos, they think of those old school performers, even more, you know, throwbacks to uh, people like Yasha Heifetz or, mm -hmm. you know, people in that vein. H how would you characterize Hadelik's playing? You call it old school, but w what do you mean by yeah. that? Well, you know, very often when we, and you just mentioned his name, you think of Heifetz, and you would think of people who play stuff that is, you know, you know, you would ask very often, no, what's a virtuoso? Also, uh, somebody who plays uh, fast, high, uh, doesn't make any uh, errors. And actually, in my definition of it, is somebody who, whose technique and uh, understanding of the, view, of the music transcends everything. You have to transcend technique. You have to transcend all of this. But the, the reason for that is, is to make the, uh, the actual message clearer. The, how could I say, the the musical message clearer. Mm. So that's that's a big job to be able to do that. Uh, very often, what we see as a as a trend in those people is that they have a a mind that goes very very fast. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been watching the Michael Jordan. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, it's supposed to be the last dance documentary about a team, but it's uh, basically about Michael Jordan. 
but uh, it, you can see how fast he's a virtuoso, right? But it's it's the beauty of it, it's the ease of it, and how it transcends it. Now, what you do with it is it's your own choice. Uh, but the God gives you this gift to transcend and to make the message clear. So when you listen to Beethoven, you get it more as an audience member. If you listen to Rachmaninoff, you're not going like, wow, this is a difficult piece. The minute you think it's a difficult piece is because there's no virtual so eh, around. <laughs> you just have to think, wow, this is, a, this is beautiful. Oh, wow. Or, you know, how does he do it? It's incredible. But the, the ease, the mental speed, and the dexterity, man, the, how you understand the music, how fast it goes in your mind. It's like, you know, chess players who, who can think at 10, at 12 moves in advance with all the different possibilities around it. Yeah. So it's more than dexterity. It's, very, it's like a real virtuoso is about the message. That's what I mean by old school. It's not just the dexterity. It's, it's the whole package. So I guess if uh, Augustine Hadley is sort of the, uh, the Michael Jordan of violinists, that makes you the Phil Jackson of conductors? <laughs> oh, I only wish. <laughs> but, but you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't call him at all the Michael Jackson. I would call him something Michael like Jordan. Magic. Uh, Michael Jackson yeah, yeah, is a different virtuoso. <laughs> well, actually, I might call him more Michael Jackson. Yeah. But uh, no, no, more like a, a Magic Johnson. I said, you know, that brings everything together. That brings the music together. That brings the team together. Uh, by and is an example that you can watch and is very positive. So for me, Augustine, it's uh, no disrespect to Michael Jordan. He's the most amazing basketball player ever that will ever be. But you know, it's somebody that's that talks about the message more than just what, look at what I can do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you more about that relationship between conductor and, and virtuoso, but let's bring Zach in because Zach, you've been with the symphony, uh, you know, longer than Elaine, uh, not only as CEO, but, but as, you know, a, a long time member of the audience and appreciator of the music and the performances Maybe talk a little bit about your impressions of this concert, but also you, you've seen other violinists come and go with the symphony. You want to talk about that a little bit? Certainly. I, I remember the first time that um, Augustine came to the orchestra. That was Alain's last time as guest conductor, I should say. Um, the violinists were very excited for his arrival, and, mm. uh, and, and more so than other violinists that we had featured that season or previously. And I was curious to know why, and they all talked about his technique, they talked about his, his sound and his way of playing and expressing himself, and a lot of the things that Alain just said, but there was, a, there was something that just knocked me sideways when I saw him perform that first time in the Dvorak Violin Concerto. Um, it was the first time in 74 seasons that the Toledo Symphony had performed it. Um, it's not known as this sort of um, hallmark core repertoire concerto, but he played it as beautifully as if it were one of the great romantic violin concertos that, uh, that we would put in that category. But more than that, his sound really hit me as if it were old school in a different way, because when I heard it, it sounded like it was coming off of an LP, that there was, there was more depth to the sound than, uh, than we get from modern performances or modern recordings. Mm. So when Alain says that there's this uh, old-school technique that he's bringing, I think there's an old-school sound as well, and it knocked me sideways. Uh, I was very excited when we talked about bringing him back, uh, for the performance that we'll see this weekend, because Sibelius's Violin Concerto has always been one of my favorites. 
and I really wanted to hear what he sounded like in that concerto. And about a month before uh, he appeared in Toledo, uh, I discovered a, a recording that he had made of, of the Sibelius, and he did everything that I hoped he would. He stretched out the phrases I hoped he would stretch out. He zoomed through the ones that I wanted him to zoom through, and he had fun with it. So it goes to that idea of not making it sound complicated that Alain was just talking about. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his artwork. But, you know, I do remember seeing uh, Nadia Salerno's Sonnenberg in uh, the mid-'90s with the orchestra, and, you know, I went back into the archives to see what other violinists had had performed this this work and the Sibelius has actually been performed quite a few times you know it goes back to the early 70s with the orchestra here um, a man named Charles Everett was the first violinist to perform it but then we had uh, one of the Kabatian sisters in the early 80s uh, we had Joshua Bell perform it in 95 um, Karen Gomio in uh, early 2000s, and um, and now of course uh, Augustin Hedlick, and it, it, I think he is just such a, a crowning performance in that in that lineage. Yeah, what was the experience like, uh, Hedlick coming in? I mean, it was his second time with the symphony, mm-hmm. right after the Dvorak, yep. coming in for the Sibelius. Um, how would you describe him as a personal, as a person, as a professional? Uh, what was the relationship there? Well, it, it was great because he, he was happy to be back. We're always happy when we develop these relationships with these musicians who they have such a good experience in Toledo that they remember us more than just one weekend on their performance calendar. They remember the Paris style, they remember the audience, they remember the orchestra. Uh, and, and with Augustine, it was hilarious. I ran into him not at the Peristyle, but in the elevator at the Renaissance Hotel. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was coming back from a meeting and uh, up at the Heights, and uh, we were coming down, and a gentleman walks on. It was very, very cold that, that weekend, uh, and he's wearing uh, something that looks like you go and uh, maybe go snowshoeing in an outfit like this, <laughs> and one of those big fur hats with the flaps that come down, and uh, he's carrying a violin. So I don't look up. I look down at this violin case. And I'm thinking, oh, a musician. And then I look up, and it's Augustine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so excited to see him, and I reintroduced myself, and he remembered me and uh, just explained how happy he was to be back and um, you know how the Sibelius was such a challenging concerto. He was really excited to dust off uh, his, his, uh, his notes and, and get it ready. Um, because he had not played it in, in a little bit of time, probably since that recording was made. And then, Alain, I'll, I'll throw it over to you, because, I mean, it, it sounded like, you know, all those notes, of which there are many, were right at hand when he came <laughs> out for the first rehearsal. Yeah. Alain, talk a little bit about uh, working with Hadlich on this concerto. And I'm kind of curious about the relationship between, you know, the Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, the, the conductor <laughs> and the soloist. If you can talk a little bit about how, how is the give and take there? I mean, does he come in knowing exactly what he wants to do? Or do you have some kind of input control? Do you work off of him? What, what is the relationship? Um, perhaps it's from my personal experience, which I've, I've been, you know, in the, how could I say, my first uh, musical life <laughs> was uh, there was a lot of soloing going around. I, I, I was traveling a lot being a soloist. As for, a tr- trombonist, yeah. Yeah, the trombone, of all things. 
and uh, enjoyed it very much, except I didn't enjoy so many times concertos with orchestra. And the reason, not because I didn't enjoy playing with orchestra, it's the, it's the ultimate thing you can do, it's great. But the conductors never did that great of a job on my concertos. Yeah. It, 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 it rarely happened. Uh, well, some of it is because they, you know, they wanted to spend, they always want to spend time on their symphony, right? And the concerto is, well, it's not their thing because it's, they, they don't shine in it. And, well, they think they don't shine. But you know that you see a real conductor to how useful you can be. I mean, if you play Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, every single player in the orchestra not only knows it, but has an opinion about it, uh, as knows what everybody else is playing. This is core standard repertoire. When you come in and play concertis, then, then they need you. Know, they need you. The, the, the players need you. Soloists need you. So actually, it's very important to spend the time with the concertis. Um, so that I do that a lot. I mean, from my... My unfortunate, uh, sometimes unfortunate experience. I mean, the concerts were always fine. It's just, you know, it's, uh, how could I say? Sometimes it was, I have a, I have a very good friend uh, who's Principal Horn in Kitchen Waterloo, and he said playing Principal Horn sometimes is like fun without the enjoyment. Mm. So I had, <laughs> I had many experiences like that with conductors sometimes. I mean, you know, yeah. it was fun to play, but, you know, I just had to like uh, gauge everything throughout the performance because, oh, they're going slower than what we're supposed to do. Oh, they say he missed that, that corner, didn't turn that corner. It's like, how elegantly can you combine that is exactly in tune with what the soloist has in, 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 his, you know, in his mind? And especially when you have a virtuals, we're talking about they create the clarity of the message. So, first of all, it's very important to spend time with the person. This is also old school <laughs> because usually now they fly in, they fly out. But uh, we like to have a soloist and to do that to come in. We have a little rehearsal together. We don't just rehearse the day of. We rehearse before. And we spend some time, and then we redo stuff. Uh, and somebody like Augustin is actually a perfect soloist because he has the perfect mix of listening to the orchestra and being, a, I wouldn't say necessarily a chamber player because that would be a step too far and that kind of... Uh, the repertoire and the soloist, the concerti, concertante uh, uh, repertoire. But he has the perfect mix of listening to everybody, joining the orchestra, making everybody around him better, and also leading. So his ideas are very, very clear. Like, you know, he knows what he wants. He knows what he's going to do. Uh, of course, there's little variations here and there. But the overall, the, the arc of the the art story of the message of the, the piece is very clear from the get-go. When, so what we want as an orchestra, what I want as a conductor, is somebody who comes in with a real musical contribution, not just, just somebody with tons of chops, uh, technique, I mean, <laughs> uh, talking shop here, <laughs> um, but, uh, but somebody who actually uh, will lead the musical message. So together, then it's easy for us to convey it to the orchestra and it's easy because, you know, a concerto, yeah, it's great. Uh, if your solo part is great, but if it doesn't really match the orchestra part, it's not that, you know, when you're listening to it, you feel there's something off a little bit. Yeah. And you, you, you can never put your finger on it. You just say, well, there's something off about this, you know? And you say, well, you know, it's not the orchestra, it's not the soloist, uh, maybe it's a conductor, I don't know, I, it seems okay. And it's just the, I, the you know, I, I use that word often, but it's true, it's uh the communion between all of this together. But for that, it needs to be, there's a certain hierarchy, is that the soloist needs to be absolutely sure of where he's going with this. The conductor needs to be very open and humble 
and understanding where the solos is going to go with this and go with them because it's clear that it's not an, a reaction we have to do. A reaction is not good. It's a common action. So if we do a reaction, we're always a little late, and that's, that's why it sounds off sometimes. But if it's a common action with the leadership of the soloist, then it's very easy. And with Augustin, it's immensely easy. Even in the Sibelius, which is one of the hardest uh, orchestra uh, parts uh, of violin concerti. Yeah. Yeah, not all concerti are created equally when it comes to the orchestral part, I'm sure. Or, or, or sometimes we like to say they're all equal, but this one is a little bit more equal than others. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's pivot now and talk a little bit about pianist Olga Kern, because she's also on this concert with, you know, this powerhouse concerto number three of Rachmaninoff. I was sitting in the audience for this performance, and it was just so stunning and so exciting how would you compare and contrast the two? And, and why don't you start, Zach, talk a little bit about that concert. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing performance from this past January. And I remember when we were putting together this season, uh, I, I had asked Elaine, I said, you know, whom would you really want to do the Rock 3 with? If you were to think of, you know, let's just say money was no object, sort of imaginings. And Olga's name was the first name to come out of his mouth. And I'll, I'll, I'll say from, from my perspective, it was really great to watch Alain Trudel get so excited like a school kid <laughs> to come and play the Rachmaninoff uh, because um, I just could tell that even when you're a spectacular musician and a conductor as, as Alain is, there's still people that you just can't wait to collaborate with. So um, that was special for me to watch, and I hope you don't mind me saying that. Um, but when when Olga came, you know, she's bringing this wonderful Russian piano tradition, and you know, she is somebody who plays at the top of her game everywhere she goes, and has played with all of the great orchestras. But the Rock Three is really one of these these sensational pieces. And if we go back to that that virtuoso discussion we had, it's very easy in the Rock Three. To, for the pianist to become misaligned with the orchestra. Mm. And in some ways, it's harder to pull off that idea that it's, it, it, it looks so easy because it's so hard for everybody. Um, I've seen many wonderful performances by big orchestras, uh, major metropolitan orchestras, in fact, where um, the, the pianist and the, the orchestra don't, don't come together at critical points in the first movement, in the lyrical parts of the second movement, or in the great finale of the third movement. And if that happens, you do notice, exactly as Elaine said, you definitely notice that um, that something is being created in front of you. you it, it doesn't sound easy anymore because you suddenly snap back to reality that everything is very difficult. And um, this was a performance when Olga came to town that... Uh, she just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. The sound that she made from that piano, it was like she had um, more hands, more muscle, <laughs> more tone. I mean, it just it sounded like a different piano. Yeah. One of the things that I find so thrilling about this particular concerto is that even when everything comes together and everything is in the right place, it sort of sounds like it could go off the rails at any minute. There's a sense of... Some danger to it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Danger is, is a good word. And... A soloist who can sort of portray that danger but still keep it under, you know, under their fingers, so to speak, really makes that concerto come alive. Every time I hear it, you know, I'm astonished by it as if I've heard it for the very first time. And 
I think Olga Kern was very good at creating that sense of excitement. Elaine, you want to talk a little bit about your working with her because, you know, you mentioned earlier that, that she's behind you where you're standing on the stage. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine communication is always an issue. <laughs> uh, well, personally, I, I find that all the instruments to a combined piano is the, the most challenging because of that. Um, the conductor has the worst seat in the house because the, yeah. on each side of the, the piano, the violin, the violin, they hear her pretty well. Uh, but it, the thing is that it's not really you're not really listening to the notes or to the playing. You're, it's really it's, it's weird to say you're kind of managing energy. You're managing uh, the the aura of the pianist. You're managing the ebb and flow of the performance. Uh, more than actual hearing every note. It's kind of the wave of the sound that has to connect between the two, especially in Rachmaninoff because it changes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> if, there, if, if the wave doesn't move, if, if it's just nice and tight, you know, like uh, together, then you've missed the mark completely. <laughs> so uh, as you said very, very uh, justly, is that um, it needs to feel like it's just on the verge, you know, and yeah. that's, and 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 that's if if it, if it doesn't sound like oh my god oh they're they're really going at the edge of the the world with this then it's not right so uh, she does that very well but you, yeah she's very different than Augustine in the virtuoso sense is that uh, and I say this in the nicest way because I'm the hugest Olga Kern fan she's a beast she's like she's just a beast I mean it's a she comes in the night before I think she was replacing somebody playing. Uh, Greek concerto with the Philharmonia on tour in the, some city like a, a few hours away by plane. I can't remember which one it was. And then just a few days before that, she was playing Rock 2. And then she came in a little early because she wanted to, like, uh, you know, dust up and remember Rock, rock 3. <laughs> now, you just don't dust up Rock Man enough for <laughs> concerto. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and also, um, she had, you know, she won the, she won a, she's one of the most famous uh, winner of the Van Cliburn competition. Yeah. And that means that your carrier is, yes, you, you have to play very easy, virtuosic nice, but you also have to manage these huge expectations that you have, that, that are put on you at a very early age. And, uh, and, and every time you go somewhere, they go, oh, it's the winner of the, you know, and it's, uh, it's a little bit like, I remember I, uh, sometimes I remember once I was playing in Japan, I mean, I'm nowhere close to her kind of playing, but, just to to illustrate the feeling, is I remember two two instances. And I can give you that the, the people listening will totally understand what I'm talking about. That remember once I was in Japan, I was playing just before recital, and I had somebody come up be, be to me before the show and said, "I'm so you know I'm so happy to hear this. It's gonna be perfect. Have a nice concert." I'm like, "Oh my god!" And then I remember once in Brazil, I was doing a recital. And somebody comes backstage and says, I have all your recordings. I never heard you live. I can't wait to hear you live like your recording. <laughs> no so pressure. Like we live, yeah. yeah, we live well, we live in an era like that, is that people, you know, get to redo stuff on recordings, all that. That's kind of a, just a little parenthesis here. It's kind of what I like on those online things because you can't redo anything. They're just one takes that we're putting on, like during the, the, the coronavirus thing. It's kind of fun because you see people playing the way they play. There's little things here and there that make them human and makes it beautiful. Anyway, so um, somebody like Olga not only plays with this great ease and great confidence. Imagine the confidence to play Rock 3 when you haven't played it for a while. But uh, the confidence comes from having practiced so much and 
let's not fool ourselves. When you talk about, you know, 10,000 uh, hours to, to be a master at something, those people, those virtuosos, are way past those hours and uh, at an early age. And it's, uh, it's about dedication. And it's, um, again, if I may come back to my Jordan documentary, you know, come in hours before practice, play hard at practice, stay hours after practice. Usually there's one person who does that in the music school or two or three, but that's it. At the end of the day, those we say, oh, you're such a virtuoso. Oh, lucky you. Yeah, I'm lucky, but I also spent uh, all my life practicing for this. Yeah. So those people, there's a reason why they're so confident. They have so much repertoire. They're so, uh, you can rely on them. And they, the, the message is very clear to them because they spent so much time articulating it. So if we look back at the performance history of the Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto, we have some real titans of the keyboard who have brought this to the peristyle. We had a uh, wonderful Byron Janis twice in 1965 and in 1977. He was a big fan of the Symphony and uh, our music director at that point, Serge Fournier. Uh, Vladimir Ashkenazi uh, performed the Rock Three with us in 1971. Wow. Uh, Horatio Gutierrez, one of my favorite pianists, uh, brought it to the Peristyle in 1975. Um, I, I remember being at a concert with Janina Fielkowska uh, and Andrew Massey in 1993. And uh, she, I, I love watching her play. Uh, so it was really great. That was a, a, a really formative concert for me. Yeah, uh, John Nakamatsu performed it twice uh, in 2001 when he sat in at the last minute for another pianist. But then he also performed it right after he won the, the Van Cliburn. And then uh, the wonderful Carol Gertstein in 2008. So you think about uh, the, the wonderful pianists, the wonderful people who've gone on to record this concerto, the many interpretations, steely, romantic, uh, calculating all the different ways that the Rock Three can be successful. Like we've had so many wonderful pianists bring it. Yeah, that's quite an incredible roster that you, right. you mentioned there of pianists and ranging through several, uh, you know, a few different generations as well. Just a wonderful legacy. Truly, and now Olga Kuhn. Well, we get the uh, opportunity to enjoy the fruits of their labors uh, in this concert, which features, as we mentioned, Olga Kern, who we've been talking mm-hmm. about at the piano for Rachmaninoff Concerto Number no. 3, also Augustine Hadlich, the wonderful violinist, performing the Sibelius Violin Concerto, uh, Elaine Trudel conducting with the Toledo Symphony. That is WGTE Presents, TSO and HD. Our ongoing television series airing Sundays at 6 o'clock on WGTE-TV. Gentlemen, I'm going to have to turn it over to our next two panelists who are going to join us, Merlin Sue and also Felicia Candy. But I want to thank you both for uh, checking in. We've got a few more of these that we're going to do, talking about different concerts, different concepts in the uh, ongoing discussion that we've had over the past few weeks. So... Thanks to both of you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again. Thank Thank you so much.
Okay, well, it is Toledo Symphony Lab, and it's time to bring in two other guests, our regular panelists. That is uh, Principal Second Violin and Artistic Administrator Merwin Sue from the Symphony. Also, the TSO's Marketing Director, Felicia Candy. Welcome to both of you. We're the B team. <laughs> <laughs> there is no A or B. We're, we're, all, we're all just as important as the other. Um <laughs> So we've been doing these under quarantine um, episodes for a while now. We're into, I think, maybe our 10th episode since uh, the stay-at-home order uh, went into effect. Um, and and now we're going to talk about virtuosi. And this is kind of a, a big encompassing topic because it's a little gray for some folks. You know, people have their... They're druthers when it comes to uh, virtuosos of a particular instrument. So maybe we'll start just by talking a little bit about what what you think of uh, in terms of somebody who qualifies as a virtuoso. Who who wants to talk first? Well, I think that for me, the term virtuoso, when it applies to a musical piece is very specific. I think of something that has a very flashy technique and that generates excitement. But when I'm thinking about it as it applies to a particular player, for some reason that connotation goes away for me. And I think of it just simply as somebody who's a master of the instrument or the voice or something that's a little bit more kind of all-encompassing. So a virtuoso player is, for me, just merely an amazing player, but a virtuoso piece is something that's flashy and brilliant. Oh. Uh, what do you think, Felicia? Does it go beyond that, or did Merwin sort of sum it up for you? He did a great job summing it up, <laughs> and I, I'd have to agree. Um, I think that a lot of times when people think of virtuoso, um, the first thought that comes to mind is someone who, yes, plays really flashy, they're fast, they're loud, and uh, it's usually, what, a violinist or a pianist? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the first... Uh, musicians who come to mind are, you know, Rachmaninoff, um, Ashkenazi, and and others. And um, to me, that is definitely a part of it. But what makes someone a virtuoso is thorough command of the instrument, so much so that it's kind of an extension of the body. And it's something that um, I think people strive to to become when they're learning an instrument or learning how to sing, but um, um, very few people kind of reach those heights. Yeah. Well, virtuoso going beyond being just fast and loud, right? Yes. They, yes. they can be soft and slow and still be uh, exhibiting virtuoso qualities. Yes. Well, we are talking about virtuosos or virtuosi, to use the Italian plural term, uh, because the TSO and HD concert this weekend on WGTE features two prominent virtuosos of their instruments, uh, that is the violinist Augustine Hadelich and also the pianist Olga Kern. Do you want to talk a little bit about those two artists? Merwin, maybe you can start with Augustine Hadelich because he's a violinist, you're a violinist, obviously, you know, there's some connection there. Absolutely. And I think the only connection might be that we play nominally the same instrument because, wow, he's just an, <laughs> on an amazing, like in an amazingly different sphere. But, wow. Um, I think one of the things that people talk about when they talk about Augustine is they mention that he has this 
it seems like an extension of the golden period of violin playing. I think there's something about his sound that's very individually recognizable. And there was this wonderful thing that he helped to put together. Um, I think Julia Fisher was the person who conceived this idea of having um, multiple violinists. I think it ended up being 14 or 15 different violinists playing the different variations of the Bach Chacon. And Augustine um, was a, was the person who compiled all of them and put them together one after the other after the other. And I remember just being just blown away by the idea of it, but then going back and deciding, okay, I'm going to listen to this blind. And then every time Augustine came on, every time I could immediately sense, oh, wait, that's him. His sound was totally different than everybody else's. And I think that's that kind of individuality of sound. Um, it's very burnished and warm. Um, I just, I love his sound, and I love the way he makes everything seem effortless on the instruments. Yeah, so um, people make, you know, a big deal out of a particular violin that is being played, like a Stradivarius or a Guarnieri or, or what have you. How much of the sound that you're talking about, this kind of burnished sound, has to do specifically with the instrument itself, and how much has to do with what the violinist brings to it? Well, I do think that certain instruments have certain sonic profiles that lend themselves better to one type of player or another. And the Stradivarius is generally a little rounder, a kind of cushier attack. And a Guarnerius, for, for instance, those violins tend to really, you can really, you can really hit those. <laughs> you can attack yeah. them with a lot of power. And so there's maybe a little bit more consonance, I guess. Maybe Stradivarius are kind of rounder vowels, um, Guarneri more powerful consonants. Um, but I, that being said, I think there's still something that's very specific to the way a player uses the bow, the way he strikes the, the way he or she strikes the instrument with their fingers, that it's still distinctive even if you switched instruments, changed instruments. Yeah. Well, I imagine that the, uh, you know, the best of both worlds is to get the, the, the violinist matched perfectly with the instrument that reflects of course, yes. their talents. Now, of course, pianists can't take their particular piano with them everywhere that they go. Somebody like Olga Kern, who came in and played the Rock Three, you know, was using the piano in the Paris style. Uh, Felicia, what, what were your impressions of that particular concert? You were there, right? Yes, I actually attended both nights, which, you know, I often do, but this one in particular um, was the challenge to get back on Saturday, but I made it. And I, I mean, Olga Kern is, um, I was first introduced to Olga Kern uh, live in performance via the Toledo Symphony, so that holds a special memory in, in my heart. And I think what makes her one of, one of the generation's greatest pianists is, uh, of course, her talent and her skill. And she's, you know, she was the first woman to win the Van Cliburn, uh, I think, more than 30 years ago or something like that. And um, she has her own international piano competition and has traveled the world. Um, but what makes her um, uniquely special is, again, her command of the instruments. And I think um, I remember hearing and uh, that she has like, lar like a, a larger hands and able to extend a little bit further, which is appropriate when playing Rachmaninoff. And she was just so facile with it and so... Um, 
emotive when playing on the piano both nights, and it just made it really, really special. Um, so I am uh, personally very excited to see the performance again on broadcast. Yeah, that'll be this Sunday at uh, 6 o'clock on WGTE-TV. Well, anyway, guys, uh, thanks for checking in and talking a little bit about uh, Virtuosos. It was a fun conversation, uh, certainly something that uh, speaks to the concert that we're going to hear on Sunday afternoon. That's at 6 o'clock on WGTE-TV. So thanks to uh, Merwin Sue and thanks to Felicia Candy for joining us by phone here on Toledo Symphony Lab. Thanks so much, Brad. Thanks. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barber Kern Foundation. You can download episodes of our program as a podcast at our website, wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple and Google Podcasts. There are several different ways that you can stay connected to the symphony and keep that music alive during the health crisis through the TSO's social media outlets, including on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course YouTube. And if you are local, you can also watch concerts from the past two seasons as handpicked by music director Elaine Trudell. That is our television series WGTE Presents TSO in HD. It's broadcast every Sunday at 6 p.m. on WGTE TV 30. You can also hear recent programs of the TSO on Thursday evenings at 8 o'clock p.m. on FM 91 as part of our program WGTE in Concert. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.